Pacifica Radio in San Francisco. This is Flashpoints. I'm Dennis Bernstein. Today on the show, Israeli occupation forces attack the funeral for Shireen Abu Akleh in Jerusalem today, beating and kicking mourners and pallbearers for the slain beloved journalist. They nearly knocked the coffin out of pallbearers' hands. All this and more coming up straight ahead on Flashpoints. Stay tuned. And you're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. My name is Dennis Bernstein. Yeah, that's what I said. The funeral today for this beloved journalist throughout the Middle East, revered. The funeral in Jerusalem was interrupted by Israeli cops and security forces who almost knocked the coffin out of the hands of pallbearers. So the attack on this extraordinary journalist continues even after she is in her coffin. Well, that certainly demonstrates one thing, that she's one mighty powerful force in the Middle East, and she remains as such. Joining us to talk about this and related issues is our good friend Zed Abbas. He is the executive director of the Middle East Children's Alliance. And also joining us is Lara Kaswani. Uh, she is the executive director of the Arab Resource and Organizing Center. That's AROC. And uh, we are really glad to have you both with us today. Let, let me start with you, Lara. You want to respond to this attack. All right, let's start with you, Zed. We're going to have to get Lara back. Uh, do you want to respond to this attack uh, uh, on the soul of this extraordinary journalist, this revered journalist? They actually almost knocked the coffin out of the pallbearer's hands, Ziad. Yes. Um, <clears throat> Yeah, absolutely. The reports is showing like uh, the final reports coming from there on the ground. Uh, according to the Israeli attack on the funeral, that 33 people, they were injured uh, and 16 people, they were arrested. And still, and just want to remind the people, the, <clears throat> these days the Palestinian people, they are commemorating their 74th anniversary of the Nakba. And all Palestinian people in in Palestine or in the exile everywhere in the world, actually, they are mourning for what happened uh, and losing Shirin Abu Akhla and the way how she was assassinated by the Israelis. And, uh, and just want to remind the people that before even the funeral, the moment she was uh, assassinated and the people start going to their house, the Israeli army invaded her house and they were warning the family and threatening them they don't want Palestinian flags, they don't want many people to come to the house and which is the houses in Beit Hamina and uh, in East Jerusalem and despite all of this the people uh, they went to the house and for the funeral they tried to impose certain kind of rules they are <clears throat> they called her brother and they told him that they are not allowed to have more than 60 people in the funeral. At the same time, they are not allowed to have the senior flag 
and they tried to illuminate the number of the uh, participants in the funeral. But the response came from the people in the ground. She's, as you said, the beloved one, and everyone, everyone in Palestine, everywhere, we still heartbroken for for her and people angry and frustrated from what happened to her. And for Israel, absolutely, this is not something new. This is not the first funeral they attack and will be not the last funeral. No one holds Israel as accountable. And all these kind of statements coming from official resources in the United States of America or Europe, how they are calling for investigation, they condemn what happened, and especially even they asked Biden today about what his response about the attack on the funeral. He said he doesn't have enough information, so he needs to investigate. So the, the, the way how they hesitate to have a clear and direct statement condemn how this kind of attack, there is a huge hesitation. But something where it helps a lot for us, all of us as Palestinians at this moment, it's the reaction from the people on the ground. Yeah, they try to eliminate the number to 60 participants in this funeral, but actually tens of thousands of Palestinians, if anyone watching the videos coming from her funeral, it's unbelievable response. And this is just because uh, she's Shireen and uh, everyone is in touch. Let me jump in here, Ziad. Let me yes, jump in yes. here and say we, we've got uh, Laura Kaswani back on the line. Laura, as uh, we said, is the executive director of the Arab Resource and Organizing Center. And, Laura, I wanted to ask you uh, your response, the fact that they they are still afraid of this journalist, this uh, force in the Middle East, even while she after she's in the grave, they, they tried to disrupt the funeral. Your response to that and this killing? Well, as Ziad was saying, um, Shirin Abu Akhla really represented the Palestinian voice, the Palestinian voice on the ground, but also one who continued to remain steadfast and putting forth our narrative and our stories despite ongoing attacks and targeting of not only journalists, but our broader community. And, you know, at this point, seeing what we've seen last night at, during the funeral and watching these images and videos, it really just begs the question of what level of barbarism will it take for this government, our government, to stop aiding this apartheid regime? And, you know, we are calling on an end to U.S. aid to this complicity. We've been calling for that for decades now. And it is time that while we understand the U.S. government bankrolls the state of Israel and we can't expect it on its own to shift its policy and direction, it's really with grassroots pressure and mass demands that we are going to be able to force this government to once and for all support the Palestinian struggle for freedom and stop aiding the apartheid regime. Lara, why? I mean, we have a a decent idea why, but I'd like to hear you articulate why you think they targeted this extraordinary journalist. And and let me uh, make it very clear that she was shot near the ear where the helmet didn't cover. She had a vest. She had a bullet... Proof vest. This appears to be a sharpshooter and an assassination. Why were they so afraid of her? Well, they're afraid of the Palestinian struggle for freedom because we remain steadfast for 74 years now. As Ziad mentioned, we are commemorating now the 74th year of this creation of the settler colonial state of Israel. And as we come across this time, we know that across the world, people are preparing mobilizations, including in Palestine. 
So what they are when targeting Shireen is not new. We know that they have continued. They assassinated Shireen, to be clear, right? So this assassination is not new. They've assassinated journalists. They've assassinated health workers. They've assassinated our leaders. Um, historically, this is not a new pattern. And so long as they're able to do that without any accountability, why would they stop? And why wouldn't a apartheid state that is backed by the largest military in the world continue to try to target a movement that while we may not have the weapons, we may not have the military, we have the political will and might, as has been proven for 74 years now, to continue to try to crush this movement, just as we've seen here in the United States. Every time a movement arises, the government finds ways to attempt to control the communities, to attempt to use the prison industrial complex to quell movements. And that is exactly what we're seeing with its partner proxy state, the state of Israel. It's been doing this for decades. This is not new. I think what's unique in this situation is we can actually speak to the fact that she's a Palestinian-American journalist. And it shouldn't matter that she's Palestinian-American. But the fact that she is Palestinian-American begs the question of what the hell is this government going to do about its own U.S. citizen being assassinated um, by the the Israeli military backed by this government? You're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. Uh, We are talking today uh, about the funeral uh, of the beloved assassinated journalist in the Middle East, somebody who reported for Al Jazeera, who um, uh, was known really as Shireen, who was part of uh, the morning routine in kitchens all over Palestine and the Middle East, an incredibly important and significant journalist that appears to have been assassinated uh, by uh, the uh, Israeli security forces. Ziad, This is such a bold action. It does appear that they took an action like this under the cover of the war in Ukraine. Yeah, absolutely. I can can say in general that uh, Israel using what's going on in Ukraine, and it's uh, absolutely to do more attacks in the uh, Palestinian. And I know Shireen is the focus of the news right now when it comes about Palestine, especially for Palestinians. But if we think what's going on, Israel taking advantage for what's going on. Even a few hours ago, actually, they attacked Syria. Five people killed and eight injured. It's all over the news. And Israel actually invaded Geneva refugee camp this morning, and there were 13 people They were injured. And add to that, Israel continued with this policy, using what's going on in the world. Uh, uh, especially what's going on in Ukraine, <clears throat> and confiscating more land. You are speaking about 4,000 uh, uh, new units. They want to expand the settlement, confiscating more land in uh, near Hebron and near Salfit and, and Nablus. And this is only recently. Two days ago, they were bombed uh, uh, a huge building in, in Silwan, and 40 people right now, they are displaced. They lost their houses. And they are destroying that. And some of it is covered, like in front of the media, but no one pays attention for that. And the whole idea is absolutely they are using this moment that the focus on the world, and especially in the United States of America and Europe, the focus, the most important is what's going on in Ukraine. At the same time, they are ignoring what's doing this. And the, the, uh, and this one, take it for granted. There are no one holding them accountable. And maximum, even about Shireen, the strongest statement is calling for to open investigation on this kind. 
uh, coming from official uh, uh, governments like uh, <clears throat> in Europe or in the United States. But in actual, in, in the, in the uh, popular among the communities, no, the, the call is to, this is a war crime, this is a donation, and the international court should be ready to prepare their file, to hold Israel accountable about this. And uh, uh, the tension is very high. You mentioned that, that yeah, they are scared from Shireen. They shot her, they assassinated her. At the same time, they are afraid from her funeral. They are afraid from her reports. Where the, like today, all the churches, all the mosques, they are <clears throat> honoring Shireen and speaking about Shireen. No matter who is she, she's, she's belonging to every Palestinian family, to everyone, everywhere. And uh, this is something... Uh, unique and historical moment. I know a few days ago she's already assassinated, but I want to tell you, reading the reports, tens of girls, new babies born, called Shireen right mm. now. And the response is coming, the response is coming in the people in the ground in every house. And I am talking with you, and I know many organizers in Bay Area they are preparing for tomorrow. Tomorrow that all the... <laughs> Palestinian organizations, Arab organizations, and all our allies as Palestinians that are organizing for big uh, uh, commemoration for the 74th anniversary of the Palestinian Nakba and honoring Shireen Abu Akhla and supporting women's rights in the United States. Well, there will be another march. These are things that connected to each other. And Israel, I think, like, it seems like they don't uh, pay attention, but I want to remind the people, like, uh, with many times, like Lara mentioned, that they are targeting uh, medical staff, they are uh, artists, etc. And I go back to one of the famous cases they did in, in 1972, actually. In July, there will be 50 years for the assassination of Gaston Kanapani. He's a Palestinian journalist, a Palestinian uh, uh, writer, and they killed him in young age with his niece. But Hassan Kanapani is living in every refugee camp in Palestine, everywhere. His name, even generation after generation, uh, for that. And Israel, of course, they are scared from every Palestinian. I say it all the time, simply. Even here in Berkeley, yes. sometimes, dinner. Yes. <clears throat> when you, some yes. Israelis, they are coming to the United States, they are living here and there. And sometimes they approach in Hebrew language and they come to you, are you Israeli asking me, uh, asking me in Hebrew, which was happened many times. The moment they ask this question, I answer, no, I'm Palestinian. And the moment you introduce yourself as a Palestinian, you make them uncomfortable. They are worried, afraid from the Palestinian story. Yeah, assassinated Shireen, and you ask why. Simply... They try. They are trying to, to erase the truth. Like we speak about the Nakba right now, in 74, when they destroyed the Palestinian village in 1948 and uproot 750,000 Palestinians, they came and they started planting trees everywhere in these villages. Part of it is to hide, to erase the history of the Palestinians. And uh, the, the bullets they target, uh, uh, Shireen, they want to erase the history because Shireen, she's one of the main people like journalists they are documenting all the violations of the, the uh, uh, against the Palestinian people i can say not just the Palestinian people they are angry and uh, 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 heartbroken even the streets of palestine 
every street in the refugee camps in Jerusalem. Even last year, when she was in Jerusalem, in front of Al-Aqsa, reporting early morning, 3 o'clock at morning, or in the evening, she's everywhere. Even the streets, they are missing Shireen, because she's the story of the truth. She's the, she's the one telling the Palestinian story and raised the Palestinian voice very hard. One of the things, I, when I go back to the videos, I remember the attack in Gaza, she has like short statement. She said it in Arabic, Allah yahmi Gaza. When she was reporting in the end of the report, she says, Allah yahmi Gaza. She says, God protect Gaza. This is now we are commemorating one year actually on May attack on Gaza Serb, uh, last year. <clears throat> let, let, let me let me jump in here that and uh, tell people that's the voice of Ziad Abbas. He's the executive director of the Middle East Children's Alliance. Also joining us is Laura Kiswani. She's the executive director of the Arab Resource and Organizing Center, that's AROC. We're talking about, well, you know, um, this high-profile assassination of a journalist who uh, was one of the global truth-tellers when it came to what was going on, what is going on in the Middle East, Israeli occupation, expanding ethnic cleansing, uh, and the brutal regime that is enforcing uh, this occupation, this ethnic cleansing on the Palestinians. It's it, Now, Lara, I, I have to monitor the corporate news. And, you know, this, is, this story is so big that they actually have to report it. But it doesn't mean they have to tell the truth. And they certainly, in the corporate media, reflect their ignorance. But I heard everybody loves, you know, uh, MSNBC and Morning Joe. And Morning Joe, he even talked about the assassination. He said there really needs to be an independent investigation. And if the Palestinians don't trust the Israelis, maybe they could trust the Americans because the Americans don't have a stake in that game. Do you want to comment on that and on the ignorance that motivates the media? I mean, I think it's been interesting to watch the narratives in the media shift as a result, I think, of mass outrage at the ways in which this has been framed. So you see the New York Times say she died and then edit that to say she was killed, unclear in clashes, but unclear who. And now their new story was it all relies on this bullet and they're trying to investigate this bullet. So the, the conversation is shifting, um, so the shift is nowhere near... Um, enough. And I would say that at the end of the day, nobody, and Palestinians, that is, or any people of conscience, people impacted by imperialism, by Zionism, by settler colonialism, no one would ever trust the U.S. government nor the state of Israel to conduct this investigation. It needs to be an independent investigation. And that's what the movement is calling for, for the ICC to conduct an investigation into this. These are what Israel is doing, what Israel has been doing, are crimes against humanity, and they keep getting away with it. They bomb schools, they bomb hospitals, they murder and massacre entire neighborhoods, they assassinate journalists and healthcare workers. I mean, what more can they do until the United States and others demand an independent investigation into this and demand some kind of accountability? I mean, as we speak, not only are we commemorating the Nexa, we're also coming upon just last week where the Israeli High Court ruled the forcible removal of people, the villages of Masafirieta, that would be the largest forcible displacement in Palestine since 1967. 
I mean, we are talking about a time in which we are now commemorating 74 years of occupation and settler colonialism, where we just come off the fact that one of the biggest voices of Palestine, Shirin Abakla, was assassinated, and now her burial was even targeted, where Palestinian flags were banned, where people were told they weren't even allowed to enter. And now you're talking about the expulsion of over 1,000 Palestinian residents from eight villages in occupied West Bank. Um, after a 22-year-long process over the fate of these villages. So all of this is happening at once, and still, and the way you described it too, um, it, it's not garnering much media attention. In fact, there's a lot of other attention directed elsewhere in many places that warrant media attention. But I think the question for all of us today is, when will Palestine, when will the story of the Palestinian people, when will the struggle of Palestinian people warrant the attention and action of the U.S. government? And what can we do as civil society, what can we do as the grassroots here in the United States to put enough pressure on those in positions of power to take that action, to, to actually hold Israel accountable, to stop aiding Israel? And at the very least, we are asking for elected officials to support McCollum's Bill 2590, which would not allow U.S. tax dollars to be used to destroy homes and cage children, something that really should be the floor, not the ceiling. And even then, we're having difficulty convincing Congress people to sign on. And we are fortunate for those who did. So at the end of the day, we are in a position now as Palestinians where it's become clear that the international community, movements for social justice, understand Palestine um, as a social justice issue. The movements for climate justice understand Palestine as a climate justice issue. Movements for economic justice understand this as a workers' struggle as well. What's missing is the accountability of those, in, of those in power to be able to exert that energy, the demands coming from the ground up, to be able to shift the conditions on the ground in Palestine. And we know, here sitting in the belly of the beast, we have a large responsibility. It's been very difficult sitting here as a Palestinian in the United States, born and raised here, to watch from afar what's happening on the ground, knowing that our government is responsible for it. And it begs the question to us all, what do we need to do to shift what's happening? What do we need to do to pressure our government to hold Israel accountable? And we're working hard to do that. And tomorrow's action is one example where we had planned an action on the 74th commemoration of the Mecca. And we do this every year. And we plan to come together to mourn, to grieve, and also to celebrate the resistance of the Palestinian people, the ongoing resistance of our families and communities on the ground. And now we have to pivot to mourn the loss of Shirin Abu Akhle and honor her. And so tomorrow's action in San Francisco will be just that. We're going to be able to come together and channel our energy and make those calls and echo the demands for an international independent investigation and echo the demands for an end to U.S. aid of Israel, which is the primary financial backer of this apartheid regime and makes possible what we're seeing and these atrocities that we're witnessing every day. Wouldn't you say, Lara, that part of that struggle also has to include the dealing with censorship at many different levels. You know, the idea that the governor censors ethnic studies, that the Zionist community can control that. The idea that the, a Pulitzer Prize winning uh, uh, writer like Alice Walker will be banned uh, from the Bay Area Book Festival. Really, many people are convinced because of her support of Palestine. So uh, that includes also extreme censorship in the media. So it's sort of a double or triple battle, wouldn't you say? Absolutely. I mean, as we speak, we want to let your listeners know that not only are we being censored by bills from the, gover from the governor, um, not only are there over 30 bills criminalizing BDS in this country, 
Um, but as we speak, the San Francisco Public Library has recently censored an exhibition that included the Arab Liberation Mural, which had the word Zionism as racism. And for that reason alone, um, refused for the refused to have the exhibition include that mural, and the exhibition has since been canceled. So we're talking about the San Francisco Public Library right here in our backyard, also censoring Palestine, even though the communities, all the artists, the poets that were involved in the exhibition have since demanded that they continue forward without censoring it, and they have continued to do so. As we speak, Germany and Berlin are censoring demonstrations for Nekba and any commemorations of Shirin Abu and CUNY University has centered a Palestine Lids conference. So every day we're seeing an escalation of the repression against Palestinians, and whether it's in the classroom, whether it's in the universities, whether it's in the libraries, whether it's in the streets. And I think this is an indication of our strength. Those in power, our adversaries, are threatened by the power of solidarity. They are threatened by the growing movement in support of Palestine. They are threatened by the fact that not only do we have mainstream human rights organizations like Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International um, deeming Israel an apartheid state, but we have consensus across social movements all over the world that Palestine is central to any social justice movement. That is a threat to those in power. That is a threat to those interested in colonialism and apartheid. And for that reason, it's in their interest to continue to try to censor, quell, silence, and invisibilize and marginalize our movement. But we're not, they're not being successful. And I think so long as we have abilities of tomorrow to show up in the streets, we have the opportunity to speak on radio stations like KPSA, we have the ability to create our own um, alternative media, then we will be able to actually counter these ongoing attacks. But the, the stakes are high. And what we're witnessing today and what we're learning today is every day the stakes get higher. And that also means that we need to step up our game and do more so that we can't allow this to continue. Because too much has been done. Um, from our ancestors and people before us for us to do better today, not only as it relates to Palestine, but for everybody. Because we know it's not really about Palestine alone, that if we allow this to happen to Palestine, that then we are enabling apartheid, racism, settler colonialism everywhere. And simply put, that if we are able to end apartheid Israel altogether, end this apartheid regime, that we then can also chip away at U.S. imperialism and the ravages of U.S. imperialism globally. Well, we're going to, uh, that's the voice of Laura Kiswani. Uh, uh, we're talking about this assassination of uh, one of the most important uh, prominent journalists in the Middle East for Palestine. Uh, Ziad, I want to give you the last word. Uh, uh, you want to sort of uh, say whatever you want in terms of what comes next. And uh, also, how can people, how do you think people can... Uh, stay with it, get the information they need. Uh, maybe there are things you'd like to suggest in terms of what you'd like people to do. Uh, sure, and I will ask uh, sure, I'll ask Lara too to add to that. She has more information actually about uh, tomorrow. But uh, yes. uh, I want just to add one thing uh, uh, what Lara said about all these kind of escalation coming from uh, um, uh, governments in Europe or the United States, the governor here, uh, I, I consider it escalation and because uh, I believe the Zionist movement right now is escalating because they are freaked out because the expand of the solidarity movement is building up and this is something like uh, a promising. I can say that as a Palestinian, which I'm living now in the United States and I can see that out is in the ground among the young generation. Even today, I was in high school in Auckland. I can see 
they are learning about Palestine. They were a unit about Palestine. And today, actually, in their class, it's about the Nakba and Shirin Abu Akhlan. You have young generation involved. And this is something really very promising. I asked the People's Assembly, tomorrow we have this protest at 12 o'clock. It will be in Balanci on 16th, where we will commemorate the Nakba at the same time honoring uh, Shirin Abu Akhlan. There are a lot of activities going on around, and people, they need to organize. And Lara spoke about this, and I will give the last, the final uh, for Lara to continue with this information. Lara? I would just say show up to the streets tomorrow. That's the least we can do at this moment. And if you're not able to, continue to just stay plugged in to local BDS efforts. Now is the time to escalate just as our adversaries are escalating to ensure that we're protecting the freedoms of all people and advancing our movements for social justice. BDS is boycott divestment, right? Like uh, in the tradition of South Africa. Yep. Yes. All right. Thank you both. I am so sorry that this happened, but we will not take our eyes off it. We appreciate the incredibly good information, and please keep us posted. You are listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. We're going to take a 90-second break, and we will be back. We're also happy to uh, welcome to these airwaves Jomay Santos. She is with the San Francisco-based Malaya movement. She's an organizer there. Uh, Right now, they've got their eyes zeroed in on what's going on in the Philippines. The violent current president has timed out Duterte, uh, and there's a fight. Is it going to be progressive? Is there going to be a real change, or is it going to be more or the same thing. Uh, joining us in San Francisco is Jomé Santos. Uh, Jomé Santos, welcome to Flashpoints. I understand um, just a little bit there's going to be a an action in support of real democracy in the Philippines. Yes, that's correct. Thank you for having me. Um, there is an action happening in roughly one hour uh, in front of the Philippine consulate. That's 447 Sutter Street in San Francisco. Terrific. We're, we we want to hear more about that. But I think uh, many of our listeners are not familiar with the level of violence and the kind of repression that has been taking place for the last, I guess it's eight years under the uh, current president who's timing out. I, I think it's important that you take a minute or two to remind people what life has been like in the Philippines under Duterte. Yes. So President Duterte is about to finish his term as president, and he was elected in 2016. And since he's been president, we've seen thousands, over 30,000 worth of extrajudicial killings due to his drug war, which in turn has been a drug on the poor. We've also seen the, the, ramp, the ramping up of counterinsurgency programs, which he has weaponized to target and criminalize progressive individuals and groups alike. Say a little bit more. I mean, let's get specific on this because, again, uh, people don't realize, I guess, because the Philippines has gotten so much uh, unquestioned support from the United States with very little Mm -hmm. of a critique. Uh, I don't think people get it. So say more. Yes. So 
Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So say, for example, in 2018, Duterte actually passed Executive Order 70, um, which basically installed the whole-of-nation approach. Um, and we also saw the creation of the NTS, NTS LCAC, which is a national task force um, to end local communist armed conflict. Um, and again, he has weaponized what it means to be a progressive individual or, or organization, um, meaning to say that if you have any criticism or opposition to him or his allies, you have become terror-tagged or red-tagged. And most often that allows the police and other military forces to either harass, abuse, and in most extreme cases to even kill you. Wow. Uh, again, you're listening to Flashpoints. Uh, we're speaking with Joe May Santos. Uh, she is uh, with the grassroots organization um, Malaya Movement, and they are uh, mobilized and mobilizing uh, tonight in San Francisco, I'm sure all over the world, really, um, to see if uh, they can do something different than what uh, people have been experience, experiencing under Duterte. Now, who um, the vice president under Duterte is running? Uh, t- tell us about the candidates and and what the hope is in terms of a, a more progressive uh, election. Yes, yeah, so the current vice president, her name is Lenny Ro- Robredo. Um, she is running for presidency alongside her running mate, Kiko Pang- Pangilinan. Uh, for vice president. Um, Both of them have a history of really integrating into the Filipino communities, hearing out what they need. She has been on the ground for um, for the people in terms of COVID response, whereas Duterte's response has been really militarized. And Kiko, her running mate for vice presidency, um, is actually a longtime student activist. Um, And he was also critical of the anti-terror law, which was passed in 2020, which again, had broad definitions of what it means to be a terrorist, to commit terrorism. Um, and it's been widely criticized, even by groups like Amnesty and the UN alike. And what how, what kind of mobilization are you having? What kind of, um, do you have a hope? Is there a chance that you can have a more progressive candidate? Um, are the forces of repression undermining the possibilities for a free and fair election? What's that look like? Yes, yeah, so actually the votes that have been counted um, is actually, though it's, it's unofficial, uh, the votes that have been counted are looking like the presidency is going to go to Bongbong Marcos. And I do want to take a minute to explain who Bongbong Marcos is to those who don't know. He is the son of the late dictator Ferdinand Marcos, who is responsible for declaring martial law in the Philippines, um, which resulted in thousands of kidnappings, many extrajudicial killings, different abuses. Um, And this happened in the 80s. And so we see a parallel between the tactics that Ferdinand Marcos uses against the people as well as President Duterte. And so we have the children of dictators who are running together for presidency and vice presidency. And the elections have so far been riddled with a number of different anomalies from vote counting machines malfunctioning, 
um, resulting in long lines where, of course, like many elderly or those unable to stay long periods weren't able to cast their votes, as well as 13,000 overseas voters in the U.S. actually didn't receive their ballots for supposed incorrect addresses. Um, And so tonight, we're really coming together on the momentum of the election, on the heels of what people were wanting to unite for hope and democracy, and they saw that in Lenny Robredo. Um, But really to say that regardless of what the official results are going to be, that the people will continue to resist, unite with one another, and fight back against the repression and the violence that we see, especially because we saw this happen in the 80s where people power actually ousted Marcos. Right, right. Um, And that was an amazing uh, time uh, in the Philippines. And then uh, you ended up with uh, Duterte, which was a sort of turning the clock back. It was sort of like uh, your version of uh, Donald Trump um, Mm -hmm. in the Philippines. Um, And it is amazing that you could have the son of a Marcos. Everybody knows the corruption and the violence. But, uh, you know, as they say, um, there's a concern because the United States... Marcos was essentially, uh, you know, a friendly dictator for the United mm-hmm. States, doing the U.S. Mm-hmm. bidding, really sustaining. Uh, we talk about horrific violence against women with the U.S. military bases uh, mm-hmm. in the Philippines. Mm-hmm. Um, where is the United States now? And uh, tell us a little bit more about, you know, the. The is the U.S. in any way trying to engage, or are they just sort of um, out on this one? Yes, yes. I think this is also why it's very important that organizers here in the U.S. have been really vocal um, against the what really is the U.S. funding a lot of these different human rights violations in our homeland. And what I mean by that is our U.S. tax dollars have been funding these killings. Or say, for example, in summer of 2021, there was nearly nearly $5 million worth of arms sent to the Philippines. In fall 2020, nearly $18 million. And even at the start of the pandemic, where many people lost their jobs, people were unsure how they were going to pay rent, there was a proposed $2 billion arms exchange from the U.S. to the Philippines. And mind you, all of these arms exchange are with the explicit intention to fight counterinsurgency. And so this is a theme that we see where counterinsurgency, again, has been used against progressive individuals and or organizations. And so we have a critical role to play in the U.S. here because of how our government is directly supplying the weapons, the bombs, the missiles, the artillery to harm and kill a lot of the people in my home country. So once again, the United States is is uh, the weapons salesman um, in this context, and the under the guise of fighting a communist insurgency. How how did uh, 
did the Duterte government deal with the COVID? You mentioned uh, in passing the COVID. I understand he took some pretty brutal actions that uh, caused a great deal of suffering. Yes, yes. Um, so Duterte is actually quite infamous now for in 2020, he had a speech where he declared um, to uh, police and other paramilitary forces that if anyone were to violate the lockdown or the, the quarantine that he said, and um, he said, shoot them dead. <laughs> and so basically, we see how he's really militarized the COVID response where there were different military checkpoints. Um, many individuals actually suffered uh, different forms of, of really strange uh, but very cruel punishment. Like, say, for example, there's individuals who were locked in dog cages. There's another individual who was forced to perform numerous, like, hundreds of squats to the point where he actually passed away. And so, and despite all of this, um, there was actually a community pantry that was propped up by um, by an individual who saw how the government um, had a very militarized COVID-19 response and wasn't actually providing the goods and the services needed to um, really sustain the people. And so this community pantry was a way for people um, to provide different food or materials to one another. And what actually ended up happening is this community pantry ended up being red tagged as well. Red and what? What exactly does that mean? Yes. Um, so, red tagged or terror tagging basically means the labeling of an individual or an organization as a communist or a terrorist. So they red tag it, and then what? And you get treated, what like uh, dangerous terrorists? Is that the idea? Yes. Anything that's red tagged is a problem. Yes. yes. Yes, so, and especially, oh, excuse me. Have you um, so, uh, known anybody, any of your friends, any of your associates been red tagged? What what, what, what happens then uh, to a person who's been red tagged? Yes, I mean, so actually even in the past year, there have been a number of different U.S.-based organizations and individuals who have started to become red tagged. Um, and the issue that we see is that in the Philippines, like I said, this gives a lot of, um, this gives the green light for police and paramilitary forces to harass, abuse, and again, kill different individuals without any, yes. um, without any form of justice or judicial process. Um, yeah. They just disappeared. Exactly, yes. Interesting. All right. Well, tell us a little bit more about what your hopes are in terms of uh, uh, the movement. What's, is there strong support on the ground in the Philippines? Uh, and, and then tell us a little bit about the action tonight. Yes. Um, if, if it's all right, I do want to bring up the story of Brandon Lee, actually, um, as a very concrete example for those in the Bay Area who are tuning in. Brandon Lee, a Chinese-American, born and raised in San Francisco, lived in the Sunset District. He actually 
um, in college, he actually became an advocate for a lot of Philippine-based issues, and he actually moved to the Philippines to work alongside the indigenous community in the northern region, the Cordillera peoples. Um, And he worked with them as a paralegal and as a journalist. And in 2019, there was actually an attempted assassination attempt on his life. And since then, we were thankfully able to airlift him back to the States and he does wow. currently reside in the Bay Area. However, he has since, um, he did survive his injuries. However, he is now paralyzed from the neck down, but he remains a staunch advocate for Philippine issues. Wow. And and, and again, if people, tell us about uh, one, about uh, what's happening tonight and also what you want, people to do or know or in terms of the organization how they can find out more information so uh, tell us about if they want to uh, participate tonight what can they do how can they join and what else uh, and where they can go for more information sure sure um so for tonight um we are having a action in front of the philippine consulate the address is 447 sutter street um, we are encouraging people to come out if they can. However, if they are unable to, it will be live streamed um, on Facebook at the pages Malaya NorCal, as well as Baya NorCal or SF Kakampinks. And so okay. for tonight, right. again, we really want this to be an activity or excuse me, an event, a mobilization where people can come together and express their indignation, their frustration with the mishandling of this election, uh, given the different anomalies that we've seen, but also to voice their concerns about the return of a dictatorship and to really show uh, the Bay Area community and ultimately the world, because again, this is one of many mobilizations that are happening across the country, that we will not accept whatever outcome comes out, that we will not accept the return of of a dictatorship, we will not and stand idly by, um, and that, again, that we have people power, and we will continue to organize uh, wherever we need to, whether it be in the streets, in the classrooms, you know, amongst our friends and families, that there will be a movement that will continue even after the elections. Okay, well, we're going to leave it right there for now, Joe May Santos, but we uh, have the open door policy. You want to come back, keep us posted, let us know what's going on, how the fight's um, uh, playing out. We're interested and uh, we want to hear from you. Thanks for joining us today on Flashpoint. Thank you for having me. You're so welcome. And you're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. We're going to take a two minute break play some wonderful music for you, and then when we're going to come back, we'll be joined by Harvey Wasserman. Stay with us.
Canada featuring her intimidated on Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. Thanks for the lovely music, Mike. This is your daily investigative news magazine. Joining us now, I think from the East Coast, is Harvey Wasserman. Harvey Wasserman is a longtime activist, solar activist, anti-nuclear battler for your vote. Harvey Wasserman, welcome back to Flashpoints. Good to have you with us. These are very troubling times. Let's start. Uh, you have several agendas, um, but let's start with uh, nukes in Ukraine. Are you still as concerned as you were last week? Do you feel any safer? The no, says they're not worried. It's only a 1% chance of a yeah. uh, meltdown. There, there are 15, 15 commercial reactors in Ukraine all in the uh, 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 crosshairs of uh, Vladimir Putin. He could blow up one any moment and irradiate all of Europe, as Chernobyl did in 1986. And uh, there's nothing to stop him. And there's a lot of talk of him using nuclear weapons. He doesn't need to use nuclear weapons, not in Ukraine or even in the United States, for that matter. We have 93 reactors in the United States, their average age of 39 years old. We have the two at Diablo Canyon, which need to shut immediately. And there's nothing preventing Vladimir Putin from turning any one of them into uh, a mass weapon of the Holocaust. There's just no no way to stop him. And so a lot of talk about keeping the the two reactors at Diablo Canyon open. They're supposed to shut in, eight, in 2004, uh, 24 and 25. Uh, but uh, they are, uh, are surrounded by earthquake faults. They have an aging workforce. They're embrittled. Uh, there's no place for the nuclear waste. Absolutely insane, Dennis. We are at the sword of Damocles here with all commercial atomic reactors. Are you surprised of how willing uh, U.S. strategists, military strategists, uh, are how willing they are to talk about the, yeah, it's a possibility. We're not worried about it. He knows better. Who know? You know, he knows what would happen to him. What do you What do you think of when when you hear things like he knows what Putin knows what's going to happen to him if he dares to use a nuclear weapon? Well, the point is, he we'll show have to him use a nuclear weapon. Yeah, well, I know. But they're talking about it, which him? is terrifying. He's a madman. And anybody who talks about the use of nuclear weapons is, is crazy. Uh, this is the human race of, 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 at the brink of extinction here. And, and there's 400, more than 400 commercial reactors worldwide. There are several thousand nuclear warheads. And you have a lunatic um, uh, in charge of more nuclear warheads than anyone else and in charge of, you know, 15 reactors that he could blow up at the flip of a switch. I mean, it's. It's absolutely, you're right, it's absolutely terrifying. Thankfully, we have renewables. We have wind and solar, batteries, and uh, increased efficiency, all of which work very well. We have 50,000 people in California who are working in the solar industry versus 1,500 at Diablo Canyon. I mean, we got to take care of our own business. we got to shut those two reactors before they blow up and and before somebody like uh, Putin blows them up, which he could do uh, in a heartbeat. What goes through your mind when you hear sort of U.S. commentators uh, mocking 
the Europeans mocking the Germans. I've heard this more than once. Those dumb Germans went anti-nuclear, got rid of their nukes, and looked at their problem. Now they realize how important it is to have the combination of uh, of um, nuclear uh, along with uh, the the traditional, uh, uh, if you will, fuels. The nuclear plants are a catastrophe in Germany and everywhere else. Uh, they are the problem in Germany is that it didn't go to renewables fast enough. I mean, one of the great human successes in all of our history, Dennis, is the incredible rise of wind, solar, batteries, and, and increased efficiency. They are amazingly efficient, uh, clean, safe, job-producing, and that's what we need in California. We need we can go 100% solar in California uh, uh, very, very quickly, shut Diablo Canyon and uh, have uh, a secure uh, life for ourselves. I mean, I live in L.A. I'm four, four hours away from a radioactive cloud that can come from San Luis Obispo. My children and grandchildren are at risk. We need to shut those reactors as soon as possible. And the people in Bay Area are paying for them. So uh, we know we know we have the technology uh, to deal with uh, the, the needs of our energy uh, supply. We just got to get these reactors shut, shut down the co- what I call King Kong coal, oil, nukes, and gas, and and move ahead. But we, you know, have this side of the human nature expressed by Putin and Trump, who are joined at the hip. They are the same person, basically, and uh, you know that's part of human nature that we have to conquer. All right, you're listening to Flashpoints on Pacifica Radio. We're speaking with our good friend Harvey Wasserman, who every Monday convenes a sort of a teach and speak out seminar, a webinar, I guess, whatever, uh, where many intelligent people, uh, it, it averages between 75 and 100 now, come together and discuss some of the key issues. It's, uh, it, was focused uh, solely on the battle for the vote. But uh, today, Harv, was an amazing discussion, essentially led by uh, the women who were participating about the disappearing uh, the disappearing act in terms of Roe v. Wade. It was pretty amazing to hear what was going on. And what I heard uh, in the seminar today is like no business as usual it's got a something has got to give people have to be out and active talk a little bit about what came up today and what's going through your mind why you devoted so much time uh to the issue today. We, yes we had a full hour led by the great mimi kennedy a tremendous actress and of course a great activist who's raised a catholic and the bottom line is that this is not just about roe v wade this uh, d- decision re- written by Alito could have been written in 1600s Boston. I mean, it's not just uh, abortion that's on the line. It's gay rights. It's gay marriage. It's it, it's the uh, uh, interracial marriage. It's uh, our basic uh, rights to privacy. Everything is on the line here. This, you know, it's amazing. He writes a, a decision that cites legal authorities from the 1600s. I mean, this could have been Puritan Boston. It's in my my book, Dennis, uh, People's Spiral of U.S. History, which is finally available on Amazon. I have a whole section in there about Puritan Boston. And this is right out of the the 1600s with these guys in black robes, burning witches. Uh, You know, if you were gay in 1600s Boston, that was a capital offense. 
they would they they burned you at the stake, and that's what this decision is ready to do. You could see states like Texas and and Mississippi and Alabama banning interracial marriage based on this banning uh, gay rights, ending gay marriage. These are all on the lines here. This is a total assault on the American culture. And the only way we can get around it is to grassroots organize and do something about this upcoming midterm election, uh, you know, which I talk about also in the people's spiral. But the, the, the bottom line here is that this is a total assault on the cultural uh, changes in human society. This is not just about subjugating women, which, you know, it has nothing to do with abortion. If they really want to stop abortion, uh, they'll support Planned Parenthood, and they'll support uh, sex education and contraception. They, they're not about that. And if it's really about life, then they'll ban uh, war and ban the, the death penalty. I mean, it's ridiculous. It's a totally it's a total assault on any kind of liberal culture uh, that that's since this is a medieval decision here. And so we have to organize at the grassroots and win this upcoming uh, midterm election. That wraps it up for another episode of Flashpoints. Our executive producer is Dennis Bernstein. Senior producers are Miguel Gavilan Molina and Kevin Pina. Technical director is Mike Biggs. For previous episodes, go to kpfa.org or flashpoints.net. For questions or comments, email dennis at kpfa.org. Thank you for listening.